Okay, I'm going to open us in a word of prayer, um, and then we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 17. If you're using the Black Bibles, that can be found on page 823, but let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. God, you are the creator of all things. You are the giver of life and breath. And this is the day that you have made, Lord, and we will rejoice in it. You have given us the opportunity to gather together to hear the truth of your word. Lord, an opportunity that is not so freely given to so many. And we give you thanks. We pray this morning, O oh God, that you would open up the eyes of our heart to receive the truth of your word, that we might behold your glory in the face of your Son by the power of your Spirit. We pray that you would do, Father, what only you can do, that you would affect change in the hearts of people. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we jump into the text this morning, I want to ask us three questions. Question number one. Have you thought lately about where your allegiances lie, your loyalties? As we think about these, allegiance and loyalty is demonstrated not primarily through what we say, but through what we do. And so the first question that I want us to have on our mind is, have we thought lately, deeply, about our allegiances? Question number two, do these allegiances make you free or... Do you feel enslaved to them? Does it feel, instead of freedom, like slavery, like bondage in some way? So question number one, have we thought about our allegiances? And question number two, how do those make you feel? Do they make you feel free or in bondage? And then the third question that I want us to think about is what is your mission, your purpose in life? I remember one point, sitting around a table in junior college. Uh, I was sitting there with a bunch of guys from the baseball team, and, and a few of the guys had had a class together, and one of the professors had asked them to write out a mission statement. I don't think I'd ever heard that term before, mission statement. And so the, as they were explaining it, they were explaining, hey, he just wants us to write down, like, what's the purpose and goal of our life? What? And so we started to talk about that. But what would, what would the mission of our lives be? And so people started, we were talking about ultimate significance, what things we would want to spend our energies and our efforts on. Uh, it wasn't the most fruitful or encouraging conversation, but it got me thinking about this idea of a mission or a purpose. And so this morning in our text, we're going to be faced and confronted with these three things, allegiance, freedom, and mission. And so with that, I'm going to read our text this morning, Matthew chapter 17, beginning with verse 24. Again, that can be found on page 823 in the Black Bibles. When they came to Capernaum, the tax collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. As we look into this section of Scripture, the first thing that we want to notice, the first thing that we want to think about is this idea of allegiance. 
And if we're going to understand how it is that Matthew is pushing us to think about allegiance, then we have to understand the setting that Matthew is giving us in this text. Notice what Matthew says first, when they came to Capernaum. And so to understand what's going on here, we have to understand something of Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was a a city, a town in the region of Galilee. And as we heard earlier in the book of Matthew in chapter 4, it was known as Galilee of the Gentiles. And so if you were to look back at the time before Jesus came, what we call the intertestamental period, so that time in between the close of the Old Testament and the coming of Jesus, 400 years, by this time, Capernaum was a heavily, heavily Gentile area. And then about 150 years before Jesus showed up, there were these group of rulers, Jewish rulers, known as the Hasmonean dynasty, and they were like, we've got to get some Jewish influence back into these areas. And so they started this Judaizing policy, and and lots of Jewish people then moved back into this region. And so at the time of Jesus, Capernaum was this very mixed population of Jews and Gentiles, very mixed in its religious orientation, in its social and political agenda. And so then what tends to happen in situations like this is that there are mixed allegiances. There are, there are people who are on all different realms of the spectrum. So over here you might have the pagan uh, Romans who are worshiping wholeheartedly these pagan gods. And then on this side of the spectrum, you may have those devout Jews who are wholeheartedly worshiping and devoted to the God of Israel as prescribed in the instruction in the law of Israel. But then dotted everywhere in between those two extremes was this assimilation, this mixture of these different ways of living, different ways of relating to the gods and the deities around. And so what we see here is that this is a, a setting of a mixed religious culture, a setting of what would be mixed allegiances throughout the area. And so then... Here's this next statement. We'll pick back up. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? So keep in mind the setting. You have this mixed setting of Jews and Gentiles and all sorts of different allegiances going on. And then Matthew is going to tell us that there were these tax collectors of this two drachma tax. Now, what was this tax? It wasn't a tax that was brought about by the Roman leaders. This was a tax that supported the ongoing service of the temple. Commentator R.T. France says this, An annual half-shekel tax was paid for the upkeep of worship in the temple by most adult male Jews, whether a resident in Palestine or not. And then listen to this. Unlike the Roman taxes, this tax was a matter of patriotic pride. This was a tax that a devout Jew would not grumble about. Now, the Roman tax was they didn't want to be paying for Caesar's government. But when it came time to pay this two drachma tax, they knew that they were supporting the service of the temple. And remember that the temple is at the very heart of the worship of God's people, of the the God of Israel, at the very heart of all of the hope and promises that they had was the temple and the worship that went on there. France continues, it was, however, also a matter of controversy. As the Sadducees disapproved of the tax, and the men of Qumran paid it only once in a lifetime, 
Now, why would we bring that up? Why is that important? It's important to understand that here is this climate and this culture where you have a mixed population, mixed religious, social, and political agendas, and the question of allegiance is being brought before us. Where do your allegiances lie? Who do you identify with? Where are you going to be placed on the map of allegiance? And then this annual tax to support the temple would serve as kind of a barometer. The way that somebody responded to this tax, the way if they paid it or if they didn't pay it, did they pay it happy? Were they begrudging? Did they claim an exemption like some of the uh, rabbis would do? Did they pay it once in a lifetime like the people from Qumran? The way that this was responded to would place somebody on the map of allegiances. And so this is what we see going on here. There is this question that comes to Peter on behalf of Jesus. Does he pay the tax? In other words, they're asking, is he in allegiance with the God of Israel? And where does he fall in the spectrum of people who are aligned or not aligned with the God of Israel? Now it's important for us to pause for just a moment before we move on and recognize something here in the text that is very, very practical for us. Allegiance and devotion to God becomes very difficult and confusing in the midst of a culture with so many different ideas, with so many people so far apart on the spectrum and everywhere in between. And this idea of trying to identify and to nail down our allegiance to the true and living God, the God of Israel, is a radically important question. It's important in the time of Jesus, as we see in this text, and it's important right now. The way that we relate to, the way that we identify with, and the manner in which we show allegiance to the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is of absolute and utmost importance for us. Now, Peter's asked the question about Jesus, and at this point... You get a little nervous because if you've been here following around or following along with the sermons in Matthew, when Peter opens his mouth, you have no idea what to expect. So here is Peter. He's asked a question and then he speaks. And you're just sort of waiting like, okay, what's going to happen? But this is Peter's answer. Yes. One word, one short answer. Very simple, very concise to make a very clear point from Peter. It's, it's, it's as if Peter is saying... Of course he pays the tax. Now what's the reason for Peter's short to the point and very clear answer? It's simply this. Peter believes in the depths of his heart that Jesus has allegiance to the God of Israel. And rightfully so. Peter responds, yes, of course he pays the tax because Peter is brought up and is living in this culture where the way that you related to this tax... And because of that, the way you related to the temple would show devotion and allegiance to the God of Israel. So, in this first section, we have seen that there is a question of allegiance and loyalty that is being raised. And in a culture where the mixing together of pagan practices and devotion to the God of Israel has become the norm, the temple tax served as a way to benchmark somebody's allegiance to the God of Israel. And like I said just a minute ago, this is an important question for all of us to wrestle with. Would you this morning, you're sitting here, do you consider yourself to have an allegiance to this God through Jesus Christ? 
Would you consider yourself to be loyal to the God of Israel, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of the Scriptures? And that's an important question for each of us to ask. But as we transition into the next section, there's another question that we need to ask of this text and of Peter's response. Is the temple tax, now in light of the coming of Jesus, is the temple tax a good way to determine allegiance to the God of Israel? This brings us to our next section, our section on freedom, freedom and sonship. We might even say freedom in sonship, and that will unfold in just a little bit. But I want us to notice something. After Peter responds, and we all take a collective breath of like, "Uh uh-oh, what's coming next? Jesus asks Peter a question. He asks him a question. Now keep in mind that what came right before this in verses 22 and 23 is a declaration of Jesus that he is going to be led to his death. So here's what we have. Jesus telling the disciples, I'm going to be killed. And then we see Peter speaking. Now the last time that this happened, it didn't go so well for Peter. In chapter 16, and we heard from Pastor Phil a few weeks ago, Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to die. And Peter says, we're having nothing to do with it. And Jesus says, do you remember? Get behind me, Satan. A sharp rebuke of what Peter said. But that's not what we see here. We have the same scenario unfolding before us, and we have a different response from Jesus. Jesus asks Peter a question. He asks him the question. He he wants to get Peter thinking. Jesus tells him that he's going to die. Peter now is confronted with this question about the temple tax and allegiance. Peter says, yes, of course, he pays the tax. He has allegiance to the God of Israel. But now Jesus wants to draw him in. He wants Peter to think. And I think this is why. I think what we see is that Peter has the right basic idea. Jesus is indeed aligned with, identifies with, and has allegiance to the God of Israel. But what Peter has missed is the manner in which that allegiance is going to make itself shown and visible. Peter has missed that with the coming of Jesus, Jesus now is the center of all things. Peter is still living in the worldview where the way that one relates to the temple, the way that one relates to the the law of Moses and all of that stuff is the defining way that you would demonstrate your allegiance to the God of Israel. And what Jesus is going to do now through the way that he talks to Peter is Jesus is going to demonstrate that it is his, Jesus's, unique relationship with the Father that will be the threshold and the benchmark and the way that we relate with Jesus as the ultimate proclamation of our allegiance with this God. And so Peter is on the right track. He is affirming Jesus' allegiance with the Father, but he has missed the main point that Jesus is the center of all things now. But Jesus is asking Peter a question. Now, this is what we hear. Peter says, yes, he pays it. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? Now, We've seen the fact that the fact that Jesus asked him a question is important, but what about the question itself? The question is meant to draw attention to the unique relationship of Jesus to the God of Israel. Here's the logic of the question. No ruler taxes his own family. That's why Jesus asks Peter, 
hey, Peter, who do the rulers of the earth tax? Is it their family or others? Peter says others. And so no ruler taxes his own family. But this temple tax, this is God's tax. And Jesus is God's son, and therefore he's not obligated to pay this tax. But more than that, the question is meant to draw attention again to that unique relationship of Jesus to the God of Israel. And let's pause for a moment and let's think about that. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the unique Son of God. Jesus has a relationship with God, the God of Israel, in a way that nobody before him ever has. And so what we want to do is we want to take a minute and think about that idea of the sonship of Jesus and the way that it relates to allegiance. Jesus does indeed, as we've said now over and over again, have full allegiance with the God of Israel, but Jesus' allegiance cannot be defined or described as it has been in the past. It cannot be defined or described in the way that it would be described of anybody who came before him. There is a new age dawning because the Son of God has come, and it is an age of allegiance beyond the physical temple. In short... Jesus is not just another dude. He's not just another Israelite. Jesus' allegiance to God is much, much deeper than Peter or the tax collectors could have ever imagined. It's not the allegiance of a temple-going, tax-paying servant of God. Not that Jesus wasn't that. We're going to see later he's going to pay the tax. And he oftentimes spent time in the temple. But Jesus' allegiance runs much deeper. It is the allegiance of a beloved son. It is the allegiance of somebody blessed of the father, like unto his father in every way, and therefore dedicated to his father, not out of obligation, but as the expression of his own will and desire and as the deepest longing of his soul. The, the, the allegiance of sonship versus the allegiance of servanthood is absolutely, radically different and much deeper and much better. You see, Jesus' allegiance is of the one who heard these words uttered to him. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus, remember, does only what he sees the Father doing. He loves the will of the Father to such an extent that Jesus can be in the Garden of Gethsemane, staring down the cross and the full wrath of God, sweating drops of blood because of anguish, and he can say, if you will, Father, take this from me, but not my will, your will be done. Above everything else, because of this relationship as Jesus of the Son of God and, and the love of the Father and the desire to do the Father's will, because of that there is nothing that Jesus desires more than the will of the Father. This is the allegiance of sonship and not mere servant. Now, the Son loves the will of the Father so much, so deeply. The will of the Father is the very will of the Son. There is nothing that the Son wants above the Father's will, and therefore the Father's will is the Son's will. And because of that, because of that fact, this allegiance is the allegiance of freedom. Did you catch that? 
Because Jesus loves so deeply the Father's will that it is, in fact, his very own will, then to pledge allegiance to this one is to pledge allegiance to the greatest good and the deepest longing of his own soul, which is then to walk in freedom. There is a freedom in allegiance for the Son to the Father, because it's the greatest good of the Son to do the will of the Father. Now, one thing that we notice in this text is that when Jesus is talking to Peter, Jesus could have said, now, the point of the question, of course, is to, to make clear this unique relationship of Jesus, the Son of God, with his Father. But when, when Jesus is talking to Peter, he doesn't just say, therefore, the Son is free. Notice what he says when, when he asks the question, and, and Jesus, or Peter says, well, it's from others that are taxed, not from the family. And Jesus says to him, then the sons are free. Plural. Jesus is here alluding to the fact that his unique relationship to the God of Israel will bring about freedom for more than just himself. Jesus' unique relationship to the God of Israel, which grants him freedom in allegiance to this God, will, by virtue of our adoption by faith in Jesus into that family, bring about the same freedom for us. And so we asked these questions at the beginning of the sermon. Do you remember? Have you thought lately about where your allegiance lies? Where your loyalty lies? What are you dedicated to? Who are you dedicated to? How would you describe your allegiance? And remember, allegiance is primarily going to be manifested and made visible, not through what we say. It's easy to give lip service, but by what we do. And then here was the next question. These things, these allegiances that you have, do you feel like they are making you free? Or do you feel enslaved to them in some way? Because allegiance to the God of Israel through Jesus Christ, his son, will bring freedom. And the more that we find ourselves conforming into the image of the son in this work of getting to know and walking with and following Jesus more and more and more, the more we become like the son and the more that our will becomes aligned with the will of the father, the more freedom that we will experience. Because scattered allegiance brings about diminished freedom. Now, this brings us to the third and final section of this. We've talked about allegiance. We've talked about freedom. And now we're going to talk about mission. Notice what Jesus says here. First, we've seen that Jesus tells Peter, hey, I think you're going in the right direction here. My allegiance is absolutely with the God of Israel. The only problem is you've missed the depth of it. You've missed the very nature of it because you've missed me at the center of all allegiance to the God of Israel. And so then he tells Peter, the sons are free. There's no obligation to do this. But notice this, verse 27. However, however, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. And take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So here is Jesus. Je By the way, I found this over and over again looking into the scriptures. Jesus is not predictable. Have you noticed that? Just when you think you have him figured out, he throws you a curveball. And that's good. Because if Jesus is predictable, then we ha have this 
complete understanding of who he is, which means that he's not God, he's not bigger than us, and if he's not bigger than us, then he's not able to help us, is he? The unpredictability of Jesus should be this beautiful testimony to our heart, but that's just a little aside. Jesus has just got done saying, we are not obligated to pay this tax, however, not to give offense to them. This idea of not to give offense is going to carry its way through into chapter 18. Now, we're going to take a little break before we get there. Uh, So we're going to look a little bit at that in just a minute. Um, But what we see here is that Jesus has something in mind here. He's got this, this idea of mission in mind. He wants us to understand that there is a clear mission that he has given us. I do want to just pause for just a moment. Some of you, like me, when you hear this story, probably what you remember is this crazy thing that Jesus tells Peter to do, right? Like the, the setting and allegiance and mission and all of these things probably have taken a backseat like they did for me before I started studying this. And I just remember this as the story where Peter's supposed to go catch a fish with a coin in its mouth and pay the taxes. And that's kind of weird. And so there's two ways we can think about that. Uh, and keeping in mind that that's not the main point of the story at all. Jesus could be telling Peter that, hey, yeah, go throw a a line into the sea. You're going to catch a fish, and there's going to be a coin in its mouth that will be worth enough to pay the taxes for me and for you. And if Jesus wanted to do that, he doesn't have a problem doing that. I mean, he's the one through whom all things were created. So to, to make a coin in the mouth of a fish and for Peter to catch it, that's no thing for Jesus. But there's also another option. There were common folk stories around this time of people catching fish with coins in their mouth. So it could be that Jesus is simply using this story to tell Peter, hey, listen, we're going to pay the tax. Just go get the money. We're going to pay the tax. Uh, Either way, it doesn't avert the main point. The main point is this. Jesus says not to cause offense. We're not obligated to pay that. But Jesus says, we are not going to cause offense. And for us to understand what's being said here, we need to just scroll down a little bit into chapter 18. At the beginning of chapter 18, you remember this. It's probably a little bit of familiar. Jesus' disciples, they love to ask these kind of questions. Hey, Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Like, I feel like we're doing pretty good here. You want to just kind of rank us? Maybe we'll, you know, get put in a line or whatever it is. And so instead of looking at any of them, what does Jesus do? He points to a little child, somebody without any status or stature in the community, somebody that would not have been looked to for advice or even looked at at all. And Jesus says, you want to know who's the greatest here? Bring that little kid to me, puts him in the middle, and he says, unless you become like this little child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus goes on to talk about whoever receives one like this receives me. And then verse 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Causes to sin, same word as give offense, same word that's used here. And so then if we move on into verse 7 of chapter 18, woe to the world for temptations to sin. And then we see this word for temptations used three times in the preceding verses. Same word. Cause to sin, temptation to sin, give offense. The same idea. So what is Jesus saying? 
Jesus is telling Peter, we are not going to put any kind of a stumbling block in front of these people that would lead them away from a response of faith in and faithfulness to the gospel message. Jesus is willing to forego the rights that he has. Jesus is willing to pay a tax that he is not obligated to pay for the sake of the mission of the gospel. He does not want to put any sort of offense or stumbling block in front of the gospel. Which is why as you keep working down in chapter 18, what do you see after these woes? Don't put a stumbling block. Don't cause them to sin. Don't give offense. Then the very next thing is the parable of the lost sheep. So it's as if Matthew was saying, okay, this is what you don't want to do. You don't want to cause offense. You don't want to keep somebody, hinder them in any way from coming to the truth of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Instead of that, what should our lives look like? And then he tells this parable. There's a shepherd. He has 100 sheep. 99 of them are doing well, but one has went astray. And so what does the shepherd do? He goes and he seeks that one and he brings it back. And so we, loved ones, are called to not give offense to the message of the gospel, but to be actively seeking those who are away from God and trying to help them hear the message, understand, see what it means to live and follow Jesus. And that's the mission of the church. We're to go after people. We're to bring them in and to not cause offense. You ever thought about the the language that's used here? It's better to have a millstone tied around your neck. It's better if your right eye causes you to sin to pluck it out, if your hand causes you to sin to cut it off. This is intense language. What does that mean? It means that the mission of the gospel should be so central and so important to us that it comes before everything else. Why? Because Jesus comes before everything else. And before this is ever our mission, it's his mission. He's done everything. He is the one who has come for us. He is the one who has left the majesty and glory of heaven and took to himself this frail and weak flesh, and he has gone after us. Jesus is the good shepherd who goes after the sheep. Jesus is the one who doesn't put a stumbling block in front of us. Instead, he cries out, all who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. Jesus comes to us and he calls us to come to him. And so church, what we learn here is that we are not to give offense. Now, you may be thinking, but wait a minute. Jesus offended the religious leaders and the Pharisees all the time. So what's the difference? What gives? Why in this text do we hear, Peter, not to give offense to them, we're going to go ahead and pay the tax, versus when the Pharisees or the religious leaders are out there, and and there's one time where it's like, don't you know you're offending them? And Jesus is kind of like, yeah. What's the difference? And I think the difference is this. These guys are asking a legitimate question. They are genuinely trying to figure out, okay, where is Jesus in this whole realm of allegiances? Where can we put him? It's a genuine question. They genuinely want to know the truth. The Pharisees, the religious leaders who Jesus never minded offending were already and almost always acting from a heart of unbelief already. 
They weren't seeking the truth. They were seeking to trip up Jesus. They heard and understood the message of the gospel and their main goal was to put offenses and stumbling blocks in front of the gospel. And so Jesus had no problem, no problem at all rebuking them, causing offense to them. Because the only way to bring people to God is through the gospel. And so people who would put stumbling blocks in front of the message of the gospel, people who would seek to trip, trip up and tear down the Son of God who is the message of the gospel, Jesus didn't have any problem seeing them offended because those actions, those actions of unbelief were stumbling blocks for those who were trying to come. And so, Peter, or, so Jesus didn't have a problem offending them. We need to ask ourselves, are there things that we're doing that are causing offense to the gospel? Are there certain rights that we're holding on to that we could let go of? Are there things in our life that are causing other people to stumble? Do you remember what Paul says? I became all things to all people so that by all means I might win some. To the Jew, I became like a Jew. And to the Gentile, like a Gentile, of course, Paul says, always under the law of God. But we have to ask ourselves, are, are we looking out? Have you, have you asked yourself, have you looked at your neighbor, whoever lives around you, and seriously thought about them, their background, their cultural background, whatever it may be, and asked yourself, is there anything in my life that wouldn't hinder or change the dynamic of what the gospel really is, but might keep them from coming to Jesus, might be a stumbling block for me to have a relationship with them, and then said, you know what, I will absolutely, willingly, and joyfully give that up so that I might reach them with the gospel. Have we even looked at our neighbors and thought that way? Is the mission of the gospel central to us? And so, we've seen today three things and talked about them. Allegiance, freedom, and mission. We just want to reiterate, allegiance is a very, very important question. Your allegiance, anyone's allegiance to the true and living God is the most fundamental question that they need to ask and answer. Where do they stand with this God? And is their allegiance to this God coming solely through their relationship with his son, Jesus Christ? It's a question that must be raised for each of us. Maybe you're in here today and you don't consider yourself a Christian. This is a question that you must wrestle with. This is a question that will either put you on one side of eternal blessedness or will put you on the other side of God's favor in eternal condemnation. And maybe you're sitting here today and, and you're a Christian and you are wholeheartedly affirming, yes, my allegiance is to the God of Israel. And though, like everybody else, you're going to stumble and you're going to have these moments where you trip up in your life, but you're going after him. Well, then I would simply say continue to run the race. Continue to run the race. And maybe, though, you're somebody somewhere in between, which is where most people fall. Maybe you would affirm and even believe in Jesus. You've been coming to church, and you're, you're baptized, and, and you're trying to follow Jesus, but you have these mixed allegiances and loyalties. And, and, and it's one of those things where 
At first, whatever it is, you're spending too much time here, and it can be work, it can be play, it can be our kids, it can be sports, it can be a, a thousand different things and hobbies. And, and when you first start doing it, you've probably experienced this. There's that, there's that twinge of guilt, like, ah, I'm probably spending too much time doing this thing. And, and then, though, as you kind of continue to do it more and more, you begin to get a little more and more callous to that. And your allegiance starts to spread out and there is this there is varied allegiance that now comes into your heart and so then your allegiance to God through Jesus begins to waver just a little bit. If that's the case, I would simply encourage you to repent of that and to follow after Jesus. Not because, not because we just want you to feel bad, but because of this truth that we've already seen that varied allegiance brings diminished freedom. Remember, it's in that allegiance to God, in loyalty and devotion to God through his son, Jesus Christ, in following Jesus Christ that we experience the freedom of sonship, the allegiance of sonship and no longer of mere servant. And so these questions are meant not to bring about some sort of merely morbid introspection that, that makes you walk away from church going, man, yeah, I'm a little convicted and feel pretty bad. It's my heart's desire that, that this next week would be more free than this one that came before it. That as you put your hand to the plow and start moving forward in this life of devotion to Jesus, that you would feel yourself beginning to soar in freedom, no longer shackled by the chains of whatever had held you in bondage previously. And so we ask about allegiance because we know that allegiance leads to freedom if it's allegiance in the true God through Jesus Christ. The freedom of sonship. The freedom that allows us to come to God and call him Abba Father. The freedom that allows us to no longer fear condemnation because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And allegiance will ultimately be demonstrated by our actions, won't it? Which leads us then to that third part, mission. Mission. Mission, we could say, is the tangible form that allegiance takes. Your purpose in life, your mission statement in life, will be the tangible form that your allegiance takes in the day-by-day, moment-by-moment life that you live. The mission and purpose of the Son of God, and therefore the sons of God, is to gather people into the kingdom of heaven through faith in Jesus Christ. Church, we have an absolute blessed gift given to us to partake in this work of God. He is allowing us to be a part of the greatest cause that you could ever imagine, to see prisoners set free, to see those who have been overwhelmed for so long in their life, just weighed down with the burden of guilt and despair and fear, set free into the freedom of the sons of God, those who have been defined in their life by poverty and circumstances and things done against them, now to be defined by Sonship, be adopted into the family of God to no longer feel like they're a pauper, but to be a prince or a princess, to no longer feel like they are ordinary or mundane, but to be now brought into a kingdom of priests, those who are tasked with mediating the very presence of God through Jesus Christ. There is no 
higher calling that anybody could ever have than this. And God has said to us, I want you to be a part of what I'm doing. And what a gift. And so, as we think about our allegiance, as we contemplate whether or not we feel free and we go about the mission of the gospel, I would simply encourage us to pour ourselves wholeheartedly into this. I haven't been walking with Jesus as long as many of you probably. I got saved in my mid-twenties, but I do know one thing, that Jesus has never let me down. And though following him and going about the mission of the gospel at times has caused pain and has been hard, it has never, ever left my soul empty or felt shackled. It is in those trials as I follow Jesus and he meets me where I am. Because remember his promise. When we go about making disciples of all the nations, Jesus said, and lo, I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. Jesus has never left me empty. You're going to bear the brand marks of Jesus if you follow him. You will be left wounded, but never empty and never, ever without hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. God, we pray that your word would do its work on our hearts. May Christ be exalted in our lives through the power of the Spirit to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.